In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Dr. David Solomon, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I am so thankful you're here with us. We had a great first episode, and we are moving right along into something that I think all of us are guilty of, that all of us kind of enjoy a little bit, you know, sometimes, and um, something that truly moves the needle when it comes to human behavior. And uh, it's it's this idea of lust that you draw out in a... Why don't you go ahead and just jump in and uh, let us tell us a little bit about it? Sure, George. Good to be with you again. Thanks for having me back on. Um, so the uh, this issue of lust is really an interesting one because it has in many ways shifted over time from a question of morality to a question of legality. Um, and really, I think that most of our contemporary discussions about lust look at the moral, the, the legal issue of lust, and not the moral, which is the, the, the medieval mind would have looked at this as, as a purely moral issue. But then we um, passed laws that basically made lust illegal, for lack of another way of putting it. And um, as a result, that's that's what we're dealing with now. But it also, as you as you mentioned in the in the intro, it um, it's part of being human. And so you take that away and um, we become a little bit less human. But once again, lust deals with um, excess desire. So it's not the idea that we are not supposed to feel desire. Of course we are. Um, but the excess of the feeling of desire is is the problem. Yeah, it... it um... You started off this chapter with uh, one of the world's greatest philosophers, Camus, and he says, uh, I sometimes think of what future historians will say of us. A single sentence will suffice for modern man. He fornicated and read the papers. <laughs> Can you tell us like, why you set it up with that and, and what that it's, leads into? It's a great line, isn't it? It really is. Um, 
you know, and, and as 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 a devoted New York Times reader every morning, I don't know if I can relate or not. Uh, at least I, <laughs> I, I, I fulfill fifty percent of his definition. Um, I think that what Camus is partially tapping into is that so much of modern life, and by that, but that use of that phrase modern, I'm going to sort of reframe that as being post-World War II, which is really what I think we're looking at here, is, is driven by our, um, our desire, our desire for uh, power, our desire for sexual gratification, our desire to have more things. Um, so much of it is driven by desire. And uh, of course, that's one of the, the main issues behind the seven deadly sins is, is this problem with excess desire. And lust is excess sexual desire, um, excess desire for things we'll deal with when we get to greed uh, in a later chapter. But um, I think Camus hits it on the head. You know, it really, I mean, if you look at, at mo the, the state of modern human beings, and again, it, it kind of feeds into what we were talking about last time about that issue with object and subject. Um, and, you know, I, I was rereading um, Paul Valerie the other day, actually, because I'm getting ready to give a, a, a keynote address. And he said something really interesting, which touched exactly on what we were discussing. He says, cut off from experience, isolated from the constraints imposed by direct contact, the mind engenders what it needs in its own fashion. So we become completely subjective human beings. And as a result, then we, we, we sort of lack the ability to appreciate others and appreciate and be empathetic with what others are going through. And, you know, really what this chapter on lust um, comes down to is the question of, our humanity and the humanity of those around us and how we treat them. And lust seems to violate both of those sort of tenets. It, it, it makes us a little bit less human by dehumanizing the people around us who are the, the subjects of our lust. Wow. It makes us a little bit less human by dehumanizing. Can you just say that part? That was beautiful. Can you say that part again? <laughs> Like dehumanizes that. us by making those around us, making us a little less human and turning the those around us who are the the uh, the subjects of our lust and makes them a little bit less human as well okay so i just want to tell everybody i got to pause tell everybody right here the book is called seven deadly sins and it's by dr david solomon and there's so much in here you guys I, this is why we're doing seven parts on this it's there's a lot in here and it's really well researched it's really well done and you'll spend a lot of time thinking not only about the seven deadly sins but how they affect your life and those around you and it, you know it leads me into you were talking about a keynote of paul valerie and and the cutoff and since we're talking about cutoff can you tell us a little bit about matthew 19 12 <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that would be the eunuchs yes so <laughs> Um, there's a line in Matthew, um, about, uh, about human beings being, uh, eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who've been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who's able to receive this, let him receive it. And, um, the issue when it comes to that 
that particular verse is that origin of Alexandria, who is an early um, Greek philosopher, theologian, second century, a brilliant mind who really was the first one to kind of formulate a new way of reading the Bible, but really reading any texts. Um, he basically misread the verse and in an attempt to just become more, um, to become closer to, to, to God, he had himself castrated, um, which has to be one of the, 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 uh, the biggest oops moments in the history of um, men. Um, and his whole goal was to curb himself of his feelings of lust um, by having himself uh, castrated. And the story I should note is, is maybe apocryphal. We don't know. Um, it's mentioned by several people. Um, but the, 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 the veracity of it is still up for, up for debate. But um, nevertheless, it becomes a, a sort of a trademark story when you're talking about origin. Yeah, it's the way you've structured it, this particular chapter, I, I really felt like it flowed. So we go from origin of Alexandria, and then we can move into the uh, lust. The etymology of the word lust is derived from the Latin luxuria. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so and that's a cognate for our for our modern English word for luxury, um, and it really does sort of connote luxury, excess, debauchery, um, and it really isn't a, 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 an English word until really we get to the, about the 19th century. It doesn't really come into English per se um, as the word uh, lust. It, uh, in fact, there's a dictionary from the early 19th century that links it to um, a Latin word uh, luio or luxum which relates to dissolving and loosening the powers of the body and the mind so again it's this sort of unbridled unrestrained desire yeah and it like that part right there makes me it, you really begin to understand the spirituality of you when you say things like it it dissolves that part of the humanity and you start to really understand why it is a sin because when you think about it dissolving that part of yourself you begin how it loosens your morals, your thinking, and it gets into your life and how it, you know, if it can loosen that, it can loosen your relationships. It can loosen your love on the people that you have and the respect you have for people. And I got to be honest with you. I didn't really thoroughly understand how dangerous it was until I read this chapter right here. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and then it brings us back to you were talking about how we've moved into the legality of lust. And as, as you've painted such a beautiful picture of us moving through the times, you can see the definition changing. And it, it is slowly morphing into, hey, it's just a legal thing. It's not that bad. And it, it takes away all the, the sting out of there. Yeah, just, and, 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 and the, the ideal example of that is to look at, um, sadly, um, to look at politics in America. Um, and so... Um, you know, if we go back to, to, to Jimmy Carter, which some of us remember um, when Jimmy Carter was running for president, um, famously, he gave an interview to Playboy magazine. And in that interview, he mentioned that he had uh, often lusted in his heart, um, which meant that he had lustful feelings, but that he had not acted on them. Um people went bananas when this was published and said, oh my God, this is such a horrible thing. And, and he's admitting that he, that he feels lust. Well, I mean, if you, if you deny that you feel lust, you're, you're rather foolish to begin with. 
Um, and he claims actually that his polling numbers went down after that interview. Uh, and then if you contrast that, of course, with Donald Trump and um, his escapades, uh, least of which the uh, the inside, um, uh, what's it called? Inside, I can't remember the name of the show. The, 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 inside the actor studio? No, no, no. no. <laughs> inside edition. Well, maybe he should have been on Inside the actor <laughs> studio. I don't know. We probably would have been better off. Maybe Inside oh, Edition. Access, that... Access Hollywood. I'm sorry. Access, Access Hollywood. Hollywood. With the tape from Access Hollywood where he admitted to you know, grabbing women yep. um, and said that basically he had power and so he could do whatever he wanted. Um, a couple of weeks later, he was elected president of the United States. And so we've really, even just in the last 40 years, moved from the reaction to this being one of moral outrage to one of, well, legally, he didn't do anything wrong. And so it must be okay. But you know, the, the issue there is that, as I tell my students, there's a lot of behavior that's ethical and isn't legal. And there's a lot of legal behavior that isn't ethical. Um, they don't necessarily um, equal out. And I think that what's happened is as our great country has moved forward in its history and developed um, and codified such a vast legal um, statutes, it uh, has become rather cloudy uh, and it's become more of an issue of, well, is it legal? Okay, it's not moral, but is it legal? Because that's really what we're concerned about. Um, you know, if I'm gonna sue you, it's gonna be over something that's a legal issue. I can't sue you over a moral issue, at least not in court. Um, I can take you to, to church and sue you there, but it's not gonna get me very far. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a, a big part of what we're talking about. And it is a big part of what um, really, I think, contributes to that kind of dehumanizing of us. And I say in the, in, in the chapter, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on Donald Trump, um, but I am suggesting that the fact that millions of people still voted for him after that says something about our attitudes towards this topic. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask your on, on that note between Jimmy Carter and Trump, like it seems that people got maybe they got mad at Jimmy Carter because he was admitting to them something they don't want to admit about themselves. Like, yeah, I do. And then sure. he's saying in, in a way he's saying like, this is wrong and I feel bad and you should too. Where Trump is saying like, yeah, I did it. Who cares? And like, like Exactly. It, it, which is like the, it's kind of like the fall of man almost. You know, yeah. you can kind of see it. Well, on the, me... on the one hand, there's contrition, and on the other, there's none. Um, and we tend, I think, uh, to feel more um, sympathy and empathy with folks who are contrite about their behavior, truly contrite, um, rather than people who basically don't care and say, well, as you just said, you know, I did it, so what? Um, and uh, that attitude is, is, is phenomenally dangerous to us just as a species. Um, never mind the, 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 the daily morality of how we treat each other, which I really think is, is fundamental to this. Uh, you know, when we talk about, about pornography, um, yes, pornography is, is terrible. Um, it is in, in many instances and in many ways illegal. Um, it is clearly, in most ways, immoral. But the biggest problem with it is, is that it dehumanizes and it sets up 
women in most cases as just objects. Um, it takes away their humanity. And um, if I engage in that, it also strips me a little bit of my humanity. Yeah, I agree. It, it forces you to see, it forces you to strip the divinity out of the other person. Like you, you yeah. can't, and if you can't see the beauty or God or the spirituality in somebody else, and that means that little light in you is dying, you know, it's going out and kind of makes me, makes me want to cry a little bit. You know, it's yeah. pretty sad to think about. It is. It is. But I think that, you know, in, in studying the history of this idea, it's, it, it, you find some solace, for example, um, you know, it, in the, in the, in the Talmud in the, in the Jewish Talmud, um, lust is one of the four things listed that God is said to have regretted that he created. Um, and so it's interesting that, that we can go back and sort of look at, so, I mean, you know, and when I discovered that it made me go back to the Bible then and say, okay, well, where do we get these stories? Right. I mean, there, there, there really isn't any lust in the story of Adam and Eve, as much as our culture wants to make it seem like it's about lust and it was a temptation and, oh my God, the horrible woman. If you look at the Genesis text, there's nothing of that. The actual Genesis text says she brought the fruit to Adam and he ate. That's it. Um, it's it's the it's the apocryphal it's the it's the additional stories that we have about the fall mostly from Saint Augustine really is where it starts that we get more of this kind of backstory about what happened and what was going on but I went to, to the story of David and Bathsheba to look at a, a sort of prototype of this story in the Old Testament and it was I was really surprised at what I found of course David uh, supposedly uh, falls in love, and I'll put that in air quotes, with Bathsheba when he sees her uh, sunbathing, essentially, on, on her rooftop, um, and he demands that he has to have her. Um, he essentially, what a lot of interpreters read as, uh, rapes her. Um, he sends her husband off to war to be killed, and he marries her and they have a, a, a child who is the result supposedly of that first encounter. And um, the Bible text is, is it, 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 there's no punishment. Um, in fact, I, I believe in the, in the following chapter, um, I think it's Nathan the prophet says, you know, God is not happy with you or something to that effect. But that's it. Um, and so I started to look at some of the secondary material, some of the commentary on the Bible, especially in the Middle Ages, to see, well, is there any more elaboration about this? Does anybody talk about this? And it seems to really be glossed over as more of a reach for power than it is about sex. So that David's act is more about his power as a leader and his power as um, as as well, in this case, as a, as, a, as a Jewish king, eventually, as the Hebrew king, than it is about his lustful feelings for Bathsheba. And of course, I mean, in the text, Bathsheba, I, I, don't, I don't know if she has any words, if she ever says anything for herself, um, which is, of course, prompted an entire generation of writers in the late 20th and early 21st centuries to, to start writing these stories in the Bible, from the female perspectives, right? To give them more agency and to hear about what would their perspective have been. Um, so it, it, it's, it's incredibly complicated, but it was, it was really kind of troubling to me as a, as a reader of the Bible as a child to go back and read that, that story of David and, and find that 
there's no contrition there's no punishment it just is sort of glossed over and we move on it's such a fascinating story in so many ways I have so many questions like do you think that it's just this, the beauty and the magic of scripture that the story we keep finding new stuff in the story or do you think that maybe we are changing as a species so we keep finding new stuff in the story I think we're changing and we we we, we read things differently I mean it is the nature of reading a text um, you know I mean many have said you know you can't read a, t a text twice the same for the first time um, I had a professor when I was an undergraduate who claimed that every June he reread Wuthering Heights. And he said every time he read it, he, he saw something new that he hadn't seen before. Um, and so I do think part of that is our changing as, um, as readers. Uh, certainly someone reading um, the story of David and Bathsheba today is not going to read it in the same way that someone did in uh, the Middle Ages or even in the 19th century. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The danger, and, and I discuss this when I teach uh, the Bible as literature with my students, is, is what historians call presentism, which is reading something that is old or reading an event that is old or reading a, a, a situation that, is, that happened in the past through the lens of today and being critical about it in that way, because that's not fair. Um, it's not fair to the writer. It's not fair. It's not. It, 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 it's it's folks who reread uh, Shakespeare today and say, well, you know, Shakespeare was really a misogynist in this play. And you're like, well, but you're reading that through the lens of 21st century feminism. That didn't exist in the 16th century, 16th, 17th centuries. And so it's really not fair to whip that on him because he wasn't aware of that. And so we always have to sort of adjust for um, you know, how are we approaching this? And that's why so many, especially when you when you read books that are commentary on on the Bible, have to set up sort of, you know, okay, what's your methodology? What's your angle here? Right? How are you approaching this? Are you looking at it from the perspective of today? Are you reading it through the medieval Catholic Church? Are you reading it through the 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 the, the Reformed Church? You know, how are you approaching this? Because that's going to color the way you read the text, and it brings us back to poor origin. Who you know lost his lost his goods, <laughs> um, but Origen detailed four different ways of reading the, the Bible, right? And one of them was the allegorical way, which is the way that we often do now, um, which is the, the essentially what we would refer to as reading between the lines. What what just if we jump back for a moment, what is your interpretation of why God was upset about creating lust? It's interesting because, again, the Talmud doesn't reflect a lot on the why. It just says that there are four things that God is sorry that he created, and lust is one of them. And don't ask me about the other three because I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, and, um, I mean, why would we think of that? Um, it's interesting because the, the, the biblical commentary on the Genesis fall story certainly does imply that Adam is partly driven by feelings of lust, that Eve is, as, as the usual story goes, tempted Adam to eat the fruit, tempted him with her, her wily feminine ways, and it, as a result, you know, cast all women as being evil through the Middle Ages and, and being responsible for the fall and the uh, eventual 
redemption of man by uh, Mary through the birth of Jesus is looked at as the parallel there. Uh, so by woman, man fell, by, man, by a woman, man is redeemed. But it certainly poses one of those conundrums, not unlike the problem of evil. Um, you know, why does evil exist? Why does lust exist? Um, why do we need to have it? Um, now, on one level, from a, a biological standpoint, you would say, well, we need it in order to procreate, um, that it would be difficult to, to, to keep the species alive without some sense of, of desire, um, sexual desire, which again, not bad. It's an excess that it becomes bad. And so perhaps it's just part of our, our human nature that when we get handed, you know, five M&Ms, we want 20, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and somebody kept repeating the phrase that we all remember our, our parents probably saying to us, which is, you know, you give them an inch, I'll take a foot, right? <laughs> um, you know, and it, it's that same sense that we just, we can never have enough. And so maybe that's part of what goes on here as well. Although certainly there are, there's an entire contingency of people who historically have um, distanced themselves from any kind of sexual desire. Now, most of those folks have, of course, led what we would call a religious life. Um, folks like Origen and, and, and people who live a, a cloistered existence. But um, there's also, you know, a pretty strong attitude that just by entering into a religious life, it doesn't mean that your lustful feelings are necessarily necessarily going to go away. Uh, it just means that you, in some ways, learn to curb them a little bit better. But as, of course, what's gone on with the, the Catholic Church in the last hundred years, it's now revealed, um, maybe that's not the case. Yeah. It brings me to another point that you point out in your book, lust has both positive and negative connotations. And most people, when they think of lust, they think about what we've talked about so far as is is in like a sexual or a, an excess of objectification. But can you maybe talk a little bit about how lust, there's a lust for life and how maybe there's a sure. positive connotation for it? Yeah, and, and, and I, I love that phrase, lust for life, because it makes me think of the Irving Stone novel about Vincent van Gogh, which I... I, I foolishly tried to read in high school. It's about a thousand pages long and I couldn't get through it, even though I, I love bits of Van Gogh. But this this lust for life. So the, the idea that we um, really yearn to, and I'm going to fall into cliche here, take the biggest bite that we can out of the, the apple to keep the, 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 the Genesis metaphor going, um, to enjoy life to its fullest. Uh, to have that kind of desire to get the most that we can out of every day. It's, it's difficult. Um, it's more difficult for some people than others. Uh, more difficult at some times than others, I think. Uh, you know, I, 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 I have to hand it to, to my friend George here, who's in Hawaii and, and living his best life and, and certainly having a lust for life. Uh, but, uh, it, it is oftentimes difficult, and um, I think that's one of the challenges that we confront as contemporaries is 
keeping that that going um you know and just uh, from a from a practical standpoint there was an article on the front page i think it was of the sunday times this week um about the new uh I think it's 998 number the suicide prevention line that's supposed to be going into into effect nationally and um you know it, it it's a fact that that numbers of suicides are continually on the rise um and so what is it about balancing that lust for life with the incredible depression that some people have I mean they seem like polar opposites right um, you know, I, 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 I described myself to a friend the other day through an email as, as a, as a cynical Bronx Jew and she, and she <laughs> answered me back by saying, well, people have often accused me of being a Pollyanna. So <laughs> I'm not really sure what that means. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there's a variety of, of people, but I mean, I, I enjoy being around people who have that lust for life. Um, and certainly I think that's, that's. I mean, it's ironic that, in fact, Stone names his novel "Lust for Life," considering Van Gogh's uh, end. But um, and the and the, the the film is very good with Kirk Douglas. Yeah, I, I had always figured uh, better to be Pollyanna than Cassandra. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought Sometimes... you were say better to be Pollyanna than Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, my friend. Well played. I I think um, sometimes. One one thing I think about when I think about lust is that it's such a powerful thing, and and maybe what we maybe what people can do as we talk about the epidemic of suicide and the rising numbers, maybe if somehow people could harness this lust and see and and this lust for life and in the darkest moments think to themselves, "Gosh, I'm so lucky to be alive," and maybe and try to harness that power of lust and see the sunrise or just see sure. the birds singing. Maybe maybe that powerful emotion could pull them out of there. But it, it's sad to see that that yeah. people are and, doing that. And and I, I I think you're right. I think that the the only danger there is um, in comparing us ourselves to others. So let me let me mm. let me explain what I mean by that. So yeah. we're going through this this horrible time with this war in Ukraine. Um, and a lot of people are reflecting on that and saying, saying how grateful they are that to live in America and the freedoms that we have and et cetera, et cetera. And I always cringe a little bit when, when people say that and don't include the fact that millions of people are suffering because it's a very, um, solipsistic approach. It's almost narcissistic. Right. You know, well, it, 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 and, and, you know, for years I taught I taught a course on on in women's studies at a women's college. And um, it was a freshman course. And we looked at the plight of women around the world. And the problem that surfaced after some time was that students weren't learning about this in order to understand what was going on. Instead, they were coming out of it with, well, I'm glad I don't live there. And it was like, okay, that is the polar opposite of what we're trying to achieve here. Um, and so we had to reframe what we were doing in order to make sure that they had that understanding and an empathy for what women were experiencing in other parts of the world and not just come out with, well, you know, thank God that's not me. Um, and I think that that's the problem at the moment that I see 
with what's going on in uh, Ukraine and some of the reactions that we're seeing um, here at home, which is, you know, well, I'm, I'm glad I live in the U.S. It's like, yeah, but there are millions of people over there who are really suffering. And, you know, I'm glad I live in the U.S. too, but that doesn't negate the suffering that those people are experiencing. And it doesn't negate the fact that I should show some um, some feeling of empathy for what they're going through. Now, maybe that means balancing my day and, and you know, not watching CNN for 10 hours of coverage of what's going on and instead going out and appreciating a sunset. Um, and maybe that's the, the balance there. I don't know. I haven't found it myself, so I can't say. Um, I haven't found out what that balance is yet my, my on my own. I, I tend to carry too much weight of, of the negative that's going on. But I think that's just my my Bronx roots. Yeah, it's 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 well put. And the more that we talk about this, it, it makes me think, you know, we see what's happening over there. But I wish everybody could see what's happening in Ukraine is causing people over here to commit suicide. Like we're so right. connected right. and we, we don't think about that. Like the, this is the reason there's so much there's this dark cloud of despair hanging over us is because yeah. our brothers and sisters are dying and we're, we're connected to them. We think we're not, you think you're separated, but you're not like, exactly. you can feel their despair, you know? And yeah. I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a spiritual malaise that sort of just settles over us. And it's the same kinds of things that, um, some folks like Paul Valerie and DH Lawrence, who I talk about a lot in the book, um, wrote about, in the wake of World War One and then during World War Two, that we're we're experiencing in many ways a lot of that same sense, but what's missing, and having not lived through World War Two, I can't say this personally. I can only say this from what I've read. But um, if you go back and look at newspapers that were published during the war years. And look at the the tenor of the conversation, the tone of the editorial page, the attitudes, even in advertising. It was more of it's we got a band together here. Um, I mean, George, you probably remember Victory Gardens and remember what those are. People planted Victory Gardens, right? This idea that you grow your own food and it would it would help us win the war because it wouldn't take resources away from the troops. Um, I could not imagine um, us today having a, a, a kind of a project like that again, where everybody would join in. We're too polarized. Um, I mean, I guess the closest we came to it was probably after 9-11, but it, it wore off fast, didn't it? And it took such a tremendous thing to get us there, to, yeah. to wipe was, away. Yeah. Right. It's sad yeah. that, it has, that that's what has to happen in order to make us kind of wake up. I mean, it, it's a similar thing with COVID, right? For the two years of COVID is now making, um, you know, big, larger companies starting to realize that, oh, you mean we have to pay our employees better <laughs> or, oh, we need to treat our employees better or we can let people telework and it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, and, and, you know, COVID had to happen in order for us to realize that. That's 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 a tough a tough uh, price to pay, you know. Uh, it really is, and I, I wish we didn't do that. Um, I wish we listened more to each other, 
but um, the fact of the matter is, and I don't know if it's the nature of our our capitalist culture that we we don't do that until it hits people in the in the pocketbook. Um, perhaps I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I this whole topic of advertising and and lust and going back to the twenties and, and seeing the beginning of hey, let's let's make women smoke cigarettes, you know, by by dressing up models and having them walk down the street. And on a side note, as we talk about technology, as we talk about lust, as we talk about advertising, isn't it interesting that the logo for Apple is an apple with a bite out of it that symbolizes yeah. symbolizes that? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> gosh, darn it. Like I I I have an apple. I, I like my apple. Stuff, but every time I see that every time I see it, I'm like, what am I doing? man? I, my pain I, know, I, I, I don't know the, the history behind how they came up with that as their logo. It'd be interesting to look at. I, I, I don't know if it was a conscious conscious uh, connection to, to the Genesis story or, or not. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. But in your book, you get, you do get into the advertising and, yeah. and how they've commodified lust and kind of tapped into this, this driver of human behavior. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I, you know, one of my favorite things is to Google old advertising right either on youtube or images and uh, they're 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 humorous so they're also kind of horrifying because you look at it oh my god uh, in <laughs> fact last week i went we had um the beatles tribute rain was here uh on campus and i went last wednesday night i'm a big beatles fan and during one of the set changes they showed commercials from 1967 the audience was roaring but they were so inappropriate and they included my beloved Flintstones when they, when they did a cigarette commercial, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it's hilarious. These commercials are hysterical. And a lot of them did mostly uh, make women into uh, objects um, and ads still do that today. I mean, you know, if you look at, um, Oh, there was a, 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 an ad campaign for Carl's jr, which is a hamburger chain couple of years ago and it was Paris Hilton in a bikini washing a car. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it still goes on. Um, yeah. And all you have to do is pick up a, a fashion magazine and thumb through it and you'll see it on both sides, really. Uh, men objectified and women objectified. And advertising, you know, goes back. I mean, it goes back to the, the, the mad men um, era of sex sales um, that draws people in, it draws their attention. Um, you know, one of my, my my favorite commercials is this this ad. I think it's Norwegian, um, and it shows a a, a young guy, um, maybe he's in his late twenties, in a grocery store. He's got his grocery cart, and he has a little boy with him, and the boy starts throwing a tantrum that he wants candy, and he just has a full out. I mean, he's on the on the floor of the grocery store flailing around he wants his candy he wants his candy and the hilarious thing is the ad is for condoms uh, <laughs> it's, it's perfect though <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, you know so i mean we also have learned how to use sex for humor right and i think that you know in, in, in many people oftentimes get into trouble when you know again there's that razor's edge right where you're uh you go over the line um but it's um it, it, it's it we have a funny attitude towards this especially in our country in the u.s right um yeah. you know I, I i mentioned in the book 
um, you know, it's like I called it nipple gate, right? I mean, when when Janet Jackson's nipple was exposed in the Super Bowl halftime show for about a millisecond, um, and people went nuts. Um, and part of that is because in the United States, we so sexualize the breast that if you look at the, the debate that's going on at the moment over public breastfeeding, you can see what that's all about. Whereas if you go to, to other countries, go to Europe, go to you know, African countries, South Africa, I mean, it's not an issue. Um, and so why is it, what, what has happened here that has made that, made the breast such a sexual um, target in, in the United States? I can't say in the West, because it really isn't in the West, it's the US. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, myself how that developed, but you can certainly see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know if it's our Puritan roots or if maybe, I think that it's, it's sad for me to think about this. However, I know it to be true that there's so many problems with abuse, you know, be it sexual abuse or molestation with kids and you can see it in our news all the time, and sure. it's it, and for anybody who's ever been a victim of that, my heart goes out to you. Me but too. It, right, it, it it ruins the family because then there's this idea of hey, let's not talk about this. Hey, let's not let's not do that. And I I think that it's so prevalent that that's one reason we're so objectified here, and we don't know how to handle because no yeah. one talks about it. We're in Europe or or maybe in in Africa where civilization is has deeper roots or a little bit older. They figured out a way to not to, to deal with it in a better way or talk that, about it. Or might yeah, you may be right. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the issue is that that kind of abuse has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, it seems like it has increased in recent years, but studies have shown that really the, the only thing that's increased is the reporting of it. Um, it's happened for a long time behind closed doors where no one ever knew and, and didn't talk about it. Um, I wonder without, without, you know, making the mistake here of, of falling into a, 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 an unpolitically correct hole of, um, of looking at certain parts of African cultures and noting the, the more tribal nature of the family unit. And that, that may have something to do with it, but I'm, I'm completely talking off the top of my head. I'm not a sociologist, not an anthropologist, so I don't know that for sure. But certainly there is a different dynamic in the, the American family than there is, say, in, in an African family who is still living in a, in a tribal village. Yeah, I, I would agree on that. Like, it, seems, it seems so sad to me that in the West we take our, our, Kapuna, our, our older generation and we put them in a home. We take our kids and we put them in an institution and the parents go to work. It's just a separation. And yeah. so much more happens when you separate the family like that versus my my beautiful wife, who is the most beautiful woman in the world. And I love her. She's Laotian in her family. And even in the East, you see this tight family unit where the kids take care of the mom and dad and the mom and dad can take care of the house. And, you know, it's it's so beautiful in a way that I think. So many people hunger. Maybe they lust for that, or you could have like a good lust yeah, for that. Maybe, you know yeah. I mean? I mean, and and I mean, you're right. I mean, and look at 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 most of most Chinese culture, which yes. really reveres the elderly. Yeah. Um, whereas, as you say, you know, we we put people in homes, and we do it in many ways. Um, it, it, and sometimes it's in the name of expediency. Um, you know, I mean, if if 
if somebody has to work a full-time job and can't take care of an elderly person, you would say, you know, well, you would be better, you know, in a home where someone can can watch after you and 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 the like. Um, but maybe we need to sort of back that up a little bit and say, well, why do we have to work so many hours a week? Why is that necessary that we can't spend more time with family? Um, it's it's uh, it's one of those curious things about. Uh, work-life balance, right, which has become a, a catchphrase in the last few years and and which no one I know has been able to really figure out. Uh, it's very hard to do, right, to make sure that you've got a balance there. It, for most people, work is their dominant mode, their don't, dominant mode of existence. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm as guilty probably as anybody. Um, but it's, uh, I think you're right. It, it, it would do us well to look at a lot of those, uh, cultures in the East and they, a lot of them tend to be in the East, um, who really have figured out how to retain that family unit and, um, and not really splinter out, which, uh, yeah, you know, uh, here the kids are in nursery school or in daycare as soon as you can get them in daycare, right? Because um, people have to go back to work. Now, yeah. do they, you know, as my one of my professors in grad school would say, do they have to go back to work or do they want to go back to work? Right. And that's, I guess, what it comes down to. Um, you know, I used to say to him, I have to go to the library. And he'd say, no, you want to go to the library. Right. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> but the, the, I guess that there is that part of part of maybe we need to kind of reframe. And I think COVID is also challenging us to do that. Right. Um, what do we really need to be doing and what do we want to do? Yeah, I, I think it presents us with a beautiful opportunity when, whenever there's a breakdown like this. And I think conversations like this, and especially your book, The Seven Deadly Sins, it gives us an opportunity to restructure the world in the way we would like to see it. And I think what you spoke about, about us you know, getting to go to work or having to go to work is that's where the lust is able to creep in. It's like when you let go of, of the things you care about most and allow someone else to, to teach them, they're going to be touched by lust or be more open to the suggestion of lust if you weren't there to protect them. And I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, in, in your book, you, you talk about lust as the enemy of serious thought. And I think that's kind of what it is. Can you yeah. continue to go down that road a little bit? Yeah, well, and it's also, you know, Augustine says lust disturbs the whole man, right? It really, uh, in many ways, the the commentators remark about the fact that these feelings of lust, and in particular, more than the feelings, but the acting out of it, really does um, get in the way of rational thought. And the the, the conventional idea that as human beings, our gift is our is our reason. That if we let our our lustful feelings get out of control, it then dominates reason. So th this goes back to a debate in the 17th century between reason and passion. Um, and so, as far back as Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, there's this idea of something called faculty psychology, right? And the idea is that in your mind there are several different faculties at work. So you've got reason, you've got passion, you've got faith, you've got all these different sort of compartmentalized, they imagine them, 
um, areas in your brain. When you have to make a decision, the faculties basically battle it out together to, to try to come to a conclusion. Um, John Milton in Paradise Lost um, says that God gave man conscience as an umpire in that battle. Um, it's beautifully written the way that he says that. Um, so he gave us a conscience in order to umpire, to, 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 to referee that, that battle. In Paradise Lost, in John Milton's Paradise Lost, Adam experiences a battle between reason and passion when he decides whether or not to eat the fruit. And the reason that that is a, is a, is a debate is in Paradise Lost, God has told him exactly what to do. He knows he is not supposed to eat from that tree. It's not a mistake. He knows where the fruit came from. But he also has been told that if they eat from the fruit, it means they're going to die. And he knows that Eve has eaten the fruit. And so what he rationalizes, what he works out in his mind in this wonderful interior, uh, it's almost a soliloquy in the poem, is so Eve will die and I'll get another Eve? And he says, that's terrible because he's so in love with Eve. He can't imagine being away from her. And so that's what causes him to eat the fruit. His passion for her overrides his reason, which tells him you're not supposed to eat the fruit. But wow. his passion and his desire to be with her, it, 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 it trumps anything else that he's been told, even what he's been told by God. Um, and so... It does get in the way. It can get in the way of our um, rational thinking. But on one level, then, you know, we might not be married, George, um, you know, not to each other. Thank <laughs> I love you, George. But <laughs> I, I love um, you, too. But, you know, we wouldn't, I, you know, so I, there's something we need to have desire. It's just it can't get out of our control. And when it gets out of our control, then any kind of rational thought goes out the window and we start doing things that we should not be doing. But because our reason has been subjugated, our passion, our lust takes the driver's seat. Wow. That's really well said. I, it makes me think, you know, what a gift it can be to, to have this idea of lust and it's almost like it's incomprehensible in some ways because it's such a great power. It's such a great driver of behavior. And yeah. to, to come to that conclusion of like, wait a minute, I love this woman more than anything in the world. And if she's going, then we're going. And it just symbolizes the unity of them. And it's a, it's a beautiful idea, but, but such love. a dangerous idea. See, that's love though. Yeah. And so we need to sort of figure out what's going on here in the relationship between love and lust. Ooh. So, you know, it, it, in in the history of theology, you know, love, good thing, right? Spiritual love, spiritual love for another human being. Um, and that's what the, the love that that two people have for each other when they get married is, is theoretically supposed to be about, right? I, I love my wife's spirit, right? Yeah. I love her soul. You know, yes, I'm physically attracted to her too. That's a bonus. <laughs> right. um, but I am physically, I'm, I'm attracted to her soul. And that's the spiritual love that has to be there. If that's not there and you only have the lust, it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. It reminds me of what Herman Hess says in Siddhartha, where Siddhartha comes upon the first girl bathing in the stream and he's just drawn to her 
Well, another beautiful writer and a beautifully well done. Yes. And isn't it interesting how it comes up that this particular subject, I guess, subject object comes up in different writings, be it spiritual or 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 something like that. Sure. Do, do you know? Can you maybe compare and contrast that in different literature a little bit for us to kind of flesh it out? Um. Yeah. Let me think for a second here. Yeah, it's kind of um, a. I mean, I suppose that, you know, if we look at some of the stereotypes of lusty or lustful behavior, um, D.H. Lawrence, one of my favorite writers, his novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, um, which was deemed obscene when it was first published, um, went through a big uh, case and went to the U.S. Supreme Court in this country because it was imported and, and thought to be obscene. Um, it has a lot of scenes of really incredible sexual desire in it, as do many of Lawrence's novels. And Lawrence often accused of, of being pornographic in that sense. And he was very much um, in tune with what he would refer to as kind of the primitiveness of our humanity, right? That, yes, we can't be all intellect. We are physical beings. We have physical urges, whether that's I'm hungry and I want to eat lunch, or I'm feeling feelings of lust and I want and I want sexual desire, I want sexual release. Um, he would respond to that by saying, again, there has to be that 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 middle road. You have to find a balance. Um, there has to be some way to still retain our um, respect and our humanity and still experience the physical pleasures of our bodies. Um, that, I think, is something which we struggle with. Um, I mean, again, if you go back to the Janet Jackson thing, I mean, you know, who got hurt by seeing Janet Jackson's nipple for a millisecond? They cut away to a commercial so fast, you weren't even sure what you looked at. In fact, it wasn't until it started showing up on the internet where you could replay it over and over again that people were like, yeah, I saw her nipple. It's like, okay, so so are you scarred for life now because you've seen a woman's nipple? What what, what, what has that done to you? Now, it's, it's, it's not, and it, the interesting thing, of course, is that in the two decades almost since that happened, um, there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, no pun intended, to the NFL, about that incident because it seemed that, at least initially, Janet Jackson was punished more heavily than Justin Timberlake was when he was the one who actually was the one who ripped the, the piece of clothing off of her that exposed her nipple. Um, but I think what we're we're doing in looking back on it now is realizing, you know, I mean, did 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 anybody die because of that? Did, did and and it was wasn't it more about my and as you mentioned earlier, perhaps puritanical attitudes about the female breast that should be blamed than Janet Jackson should be blamed. Um, so it, it, it's 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 complicated, as they would say on Facebook. It's a comp. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it says so much about us. I I want to be mindful of your time, Doctor. How are you doing sure. on time? Yep, we're good. Okay. Um, 
do you mean we're good as in we should continue to talk for a little bit? Yeah, or? yeah we can we can do another five five minutes or so. Okay, perfect. I just had a towards the end here, I had um God, you got great cats going back there. Oh, these guys are such rascals. <laughs> we love them. They're so much fun to be around. And you can see the animalistic lust when they want to go outside or they want to get their food, which you know, I think something important to talk about, maybe to end up here, is uh, some of Charles Taylor's work about yeah. sources of self and, and the inner. And and can you maybe just kind of flesh that out before sure. we go? Sure. So Taylor's Canadian philosopher, um, and um, he wrote this, uh, well, he's written two mammoth books. Um, one is called The Secular Age, and the other is called Sources of Self. Um, they are um, not easy reads, but both, both certainly worth your time if you're willing to put put it into it. And um, he really, especially in Sources of Self, elaborates a good deal on what I see in Augustine and in Carl Jung, which is this focus on inner self and outer self and the interior and the exterior and our relationship between those. And so what I mean is, and, and I keep coming back to this really in just about everything that I write, is part of our issue with modern life, with the speed of modern life, some of which we can blame technology on, is it has really prevented us from taking the time to reflect, to contemplate to sit quietly and just think. Um, we are constantly bombarded with data. It's difficult to get away from it. And without that, we are losing as a result that sense of who we are, our sense of self, because we live almost an entirely exterior existence. It's all about my relationship to the world and to others. And I've moved away from thinking about, well, what about my relationship to me? And, you know, perhaps as we mentioned, I think last time, this is the cause of all of the, the, the increase in people meditating and doing, you know, yoga. Um, and isn't it interesting that so much of the practice that people engage in when it comes to this comes from Eastern uh, thought and not the West. Uh, and, and, I think there's a reason for that, and it's it's a fundamental sort of difference between Western religion and, and Eastern religion. Uh, Western religion tends to focus much more on the exterior, the what is beyond you, and the Eastern religion is more on the interior. And my my the easiest example of that is that in in the three major Western religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, you pray to God. In most Eastern religions, when you meditate, it is looking within. So if you want to make a change, make it. You're not praying to a divinity. The divinity is within you. And so you have the power to make those changes. It's just somehow you have thrown up obstacles to being able to do that. And in many cases, I think it's just one of the obstacles is our inability to really look within and to, to look at ourselves, um, you know, we mentioned, we were talking last week about the, the subject-object divide and, and um, 
I think it's really interesting because mirrors and just the metaphor of a mirror, right? Of sitting and 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 looking at yourself. Um, there's a great scene in in Hamlet where um, Hamlet wants his mother to sit down and look at herself in a mirror to see to look at her soul. He wants her to look at her soul um, because he's impl he's implying that she is somehow involved was involved in the death of his of his father. And um, it's a it's a wonderful scene because he makes her sit down and, and look at herself in the mirror, and then he drills it down further and he says, you know, essentially, I want you to look at your soul, look past the surface, look at what's inside, and we can't do that if we never have the time, if we never disconnect, um, and many people don't uh you know I, I could walk through my office on campus here is in our library beautiful building filled with students working and i could walk through here and i could probably count on one hand the number of students who are sitting working either just with a book and a pad and no earbuds in there are very few i'm sure um you know and and again i'm not i'm not i, I don't want to come off as being hypocritical. I'm guilty of this as anybody. Um, I can't work in silence. I have a hard time doing that. But I do realize the importance of it. I realize that it is important to disconnect because it's really the only way that I'm going to get in touch with what's really important. Yeah, that that sums it up. I mean, I, that's really well said. And it's something that we should we we can all work on ourselves, and it's something that's also a beautiful thing to do, and it takes a lot of courage to do. It does. It, it does. really does. Doctor, I, I really enjoy our conversations, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback from, from it so far. And uh, I just want to let everybody know the book, again, is called Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, all his links are below. He's got an awesome blog that I'm going to put down there. Maybe, who knows, he might have a newsletter coming someday or something. But can you tell people where they can find you if they want to? Sure. My website is David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. Um, and you can contact me through there. And if you have the book and you would like me to sign it for you, I'd be happy to do that. Just contact me through the website and we can arrange that. Um, sadly, I don't have enough copies of the book to sell them on my website. <laughs> um, but you can get them from Amazon and, um, you know, any any... Any other place where you can order books, I encourage you to do that in other other places where you where you can possibly order a book and not just on Amazon. Fantastic. And we'll be back next Tuesday to do it again. And if uh, and we'll be back at seven o'clock Hawaii Standard Time. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> I, thank you very much, doctor, for spending time with me and my audience today. We had a great conversation and um, I will uh, look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Thanks, George. Really okay. appreciate it. All right. Aloha. Bye bye. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. 
and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.